You can turn to Acts chapter 2. We'll continue our journey through the book of Acts this morning. It's good in life to know where you come from. Me, I came from these two who had those two. I'm the taller one on the far of the screen. And my brother and I, we grew up in a very happy home. Wonderful home. Our, our parents loved us and cared for us. I mean, look how happy I am in that bottom picture. I'm the one standing. I feel like I've spent the rest of my life since that picture trying to get back there. I want to be that happy again. Look how happy that kid is. That looks awesome. We grew up in such a happy home, but it did exact a price on my parents. If you notice the picture of my dad there on the left, look at his expression. You see the the pain and fatigue in his eyes, and now that I have two five-year-olds of my own, I understand what it feels like for them to use you as a human jungle gym the entire day. I look like that six o'clock every day, so sorry, Dad. I did that to you. I caused that pain. We grew up in a happy home. When you look back at my pictures, certain themes jump out to you of what it looked like for me to grow up. So one theme is the country. Grew up on a lot of land, lots of pictures of climbing hay bales and riding tractors. We did that from an early age. Church is another theme. We were at church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. Me and my Awana vest. We were all over church all the time. That's me getting baptized there and on that picture. So church is another theme. Another theme is making my younger brother cry which I was very good at doing without getting caught because look at me on the far, look at that smile. I look so innocent. You, you could not punish that boy. So I got away with it all the time. So making my brother cry, that's another theme that jumps out at you. Fixing things or trying to, I was born with the knack. So I was always trying to take stuff apart and fix it. It's just part of what I did as a kid, driving anything, anytime, anywhere. That was, I was all over that. I love that, still do. Uh, and finally, final theme that kind of jumps out at you as you look through my pictures growing up is nerdiness. Um, this is some of my earlier <laughs> nerd years. That is Pumpkin Einstein there. And yes, I wrote all those equations on the chalkboard from him. That's, that's kind of what I did as a kid. So these are my early nerd years, and here are my latter nerd years. Uh, you may notice I'm not showing you any pictures of me in a tux getting ready to go to prom or getting ready to go out on a date because there are none. None. <laughs> because I was doing this. This was me growing up. I, I was always building things, doing science fair, wearing tunnels. That's just who I am. So I show you these pictures because where we come from shapes who we are today. My history, my story growing up has made me the man I am. Just ask Julie at the end of the service. She'll tell you not much of this has changed. I still don't know how to dance. I still love to drive. And I am still more comfortable around wind tunnels than around women. And that's always going to be true. That's just who I am. Where I come from has made me the man I am. It's good to know where you come from. And so this morning we are going to talk about where we come from, not as individuals, but as a family. This community called the church, we're going to talk about our story, our birth, where we come from so that we understand who we are today. So if you want to know where we as, as a group, as a community come from, you've got to turn to the book of Acts. Because as we said last week, Acts is our story because Acts is about the church and we are the church. So Acts is about us. We believe that the church began in Acts chapter 2. 
a new form of the kingdom of God was ushered on earth in Acts chapter 2. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the birth of the church. And we're going to see how we, the church, we were born of the spirit and of the gospel. That's where I'm headed this morning. Two things that gave birth to you, the spirit and the gospel. So let's look at this story of the beginning of us, the beginning of the church. Let's look in Acts chapter two. We're gonna see first that the church is born of the spirit. Born of the spirit. So look at chapter two, verse one with me. Luke says that when the day of Pentecost had come, they, the followers of Jesus, were all together in one place. Pentecost, let me explain for a second. Pentecost is a feast that Jews celebrate. It was a festival that commemorated the end of the grain harvest and it was 50 days after Passover. So let's just, let's get ourselves set in the context. We are 50 days after the death of Jesus. And so 50 days before this, Jesus died. Then he rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven. And now on this day, 50 days after Passover, this is when the Holy Spirit comes to to earth to give birth to the church. He comes to fill God's people for the first time. And and when the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2 to, to create, to give birth to this new thing called the church, he announces his arrival with five miracles. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at five miracles here in Acts chapter 2 that announce the arrival of the Holy Spirit. First miracle is verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. So the first miracle is noise. It's, it's the wind. It, it sounds like a mighty wind from heaven and that reminds us of Jesus' words to Nicodemus that the Holy Spirit is, is like the wind. He goes wherever he wants with great power even if you can never see him. So the first miracle is this noise from heaven. Second miracle, verse, two, verse three, and there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. So the, the second miracle is fire. This, this flame of fire comes to rest on each disciple's head and clearly it's not real fire because they weren't in pain. It's some kind of spiritual form of fire, something that represents the presence of God often in scripture. Think about the burning bush that appeared to Moses. Bush didn't burn up. That's some kind of spiritual fire. That's what comes to rest on the head of each of the disciples. So we've got noise, we've got fire, and then miracle number three that the Spirit works is tongues. Look with me in the next verse. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with one another as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Fergie and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. So the Spirit gives a third miracle, the gift of tongues. And let's be clear, tongues is a weird word. All all it means in Greek is languages. 
they were able to speak in foreign languages that they did not know. So this was like if all of a sudden I could talk to you in Mandarin, never studied Mandarin, never spoken of it. That'd be the gift of tongues. Spirit gives you a, a language that you don't know. You're able to speak in it. So, so the disciples, the followers of Jesus, they begin to speak in languages they don't know, and that draws a crowd. The effect of it is that thousands of people come out of their homes to figure out what is going on. Why are we hearing all these people speak in our own foreign languages? And that's really what these sign gifts, that's what we call these, these sign miracles of the Spirit, that's what they're designed to do is gather a crowd. They're unusual. And so people take notice and they come together. It is a sign from God to the city of Jerusalem that something new is happening, something amazing is happening right now. You're going to see those same sign miracles throughout Acts every time that God is announcing the Spirit, announcing something new to a new group of people. So when the, when the church extends to the Samaritans in chapter 8, you're going to see tongues again. When the Spirit extends to the Gentiles, you're going to see tongues again in chapter 10. That's the same pattern we should expect to see today. I am not expecting this morning to see flame descending on any of your heads or any of you speaking in tongues because this is not a new place for the Spirit. This is an established church in a culture that knows a lot about Jesus even if they don't believe in him. So, so biblically, we don't expect to see tongues or fire or wind from God here because this is not new territory for the gospel. But overseas... When a missionary is taking the gospel across a new frontier to a group of people who've never heard it, who have no churches, who don't know about Jesus, then I would expect to see the Spirit do some crazy stuff. I would expect to see fire and healing and tongues because that's what the Spirit does. Every time the gospel moves into a new frontier, he does amazing things like these first three miracles. So this morning, I'm not expecting for these first three miracles to happen here because we live in, in a context where we already have the gospel, and that may make you feel sad that these three things aren't going to happen. But let me comfort you by telling you that the first three miracles are the small ones. Remember, the Spirit's going to do five big things here. Five miraculous things in Acts chapter 2, and these three are the small ones, the insignificant ones compared to what the Spirit will do next. The Spirit is, is real, He's here today, and He's still doing the two big miracles right here in our midst that we're gonna see next in the chapter. So miracle number four, bigger than all the first three, miracle number four, the Spirit's gonna transform a guy named Peter. Look with me, let's look at verse 14. But Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day, but this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Peter stands up. 
in front of a crowd that we'll see soon is numbering in the thousands, thousands of people, and Peter speaks boldly. I want you to think for a second, what was Peter doing 50 days before this? 50 days before this moment, what was he doing? He was denying Jesus. He was denying Jesus not before soldiers, but before a few servants. He, he was a coward. He was ashamed of Jesus. He ran away. And yet, 50 days later, this is the same guy. Now he's standing up and he's speaking boldly about Jesus in front of a crowd of thousands. And think about it, what city is he in? He's in Jerusalem. So this crowd, this is the same crowd that 50 days earlier had shouted, crucify him to Jesus. So Peter stands up and he knows this may be it. If they go crucify me on me like they did on on Jesus, then this is my last day on earth. And yet despite that, despite that this could be his last moment on earth, he stands up and boldly, courageously, he shares the gospel. He shares all of this good news about Jesus. It's incredible transformation. This is a, a much bigger miracle than noise or fire or tongues. The Holy Spirit takes a coward and miraculously, instantaneously transforms him into one of the greatest witnesses for Jesus who's ever lived. That's why I love the story of Peter. I got a chance a few years ago to write a book for Nav Press and I could write on anybody and I chose Peter because I love Peter in this chapter because if God can do this with a coward like Peter, then he can do something great in my life too. Peter's transformation is proof that none of us are beyond hope of God's spirit. If he can transform a man like Peter, he can transform you, even if you're afraid, even if you're sinful, even if you're cowardly, even if you're anxious, even if you think very lowly of yourself, God can transform you and do amazing things through you, and Peter is your proof. The Holy Spirit transformed him from a coward into a bold lion of a witness. It is just what God promised to do in the Old Testament. So that's why Peter quotes Joel. That's the the quotation that we read, Joel chapter two. Peter quotes Joel and, and he tells us that Joel, as he was prophesying about the gift of the Spirit who would come, Joel told us that the Spirit would come in the last days. You may notice that in verse 17. Last days, that's where you're living. This is what the Bible calls the last days. Between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, you live in the last days. We don't know how long they're going to last. We just know this is the age of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit is poured from heaven into the people of God to transform them, to work miracles in their life. That's what he's doing today. That's what he's doing right now. And, and his miraculous work in our lives will just grow with time. By the time that Jesus comes back, Joel tells us there's going to be crazy stuff going on in the sky above and on the earth below. That's not happened yet. It'll happen when Jesus returns. But right now, the Spirit is here transforming men and women into faithful witnesses for God. That's what God promised to do in the Old Testament through another man, a man named Ezekiel. God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That is God's promise of of the new covenant, a new gift of the spirit. God will give you a new spirit who will transform your life, who will make you bold, who will give you a heart for God and will help you, enable you to walk in righteousness and in obedience. That's what God is doing right now through his spirit. 
Now that transformation isn't complete yet. We know that because Peter still blew it later in life. He, he still struggled with sin just like we do. This won't be finished till we get to heaven, but it has begun today. God's spirit is in you, transforming you, changing you from a coward who is full of anxiety and sin into a bold witness for Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing today. Greater miracle by far than tongues. God is transforming men and women into bold witnesses for Jesus today. And it is that miracle that God transforms Peter into this bold witness that leads to the fifth miracle, which is actually the greatest miracle in the chapter of all. Crazy miracle. Look towards the end of the chapter. This is the biggest one of all. Verse 41. Luke says, So then, those who had received his word, that is Peter's word, were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Okay, so the fifth and greatest miracle is salvation. The church goes from 120 people at the beginning of the chapter to 3,120 people by the end of the chapter. 2,600% growth. Biggest growth ever. Makes Billy Graham Crusade look like peanuts compared to this. Huge transformation. And remember what we said. These are the same people who crucified Jesus 50 days ago. They hated Jesus 50 days ago. And yet the Spirit works a miracle and turns them from hate into trust, from hate into love. Now they love Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They commit their lives to Jesus. It's the greatest miracle of all. The Holy Spirit opens the eyes of the blind. He turns enemies of God into children of God. He saves the unsavable 3,000 at a time. And so the the church, when we think about where we come from, first and foremost, the church comes from the Holy Spirit. We are born of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who makes us a body of Christ empowered with Christ's Spirit. And so let's be really clear as, as we think about our gathering this morning, this church service. The most important person in this room right now is not me. I'm actually quite insignificant. Many people here could replace me and do a better job. I'm insignificant, worship leader, insignificant, sound, insignificant, elders, insignificant. Most important person in this room is the Spirit. And he's really here. He's for reals, right here, right now. He is in us, he is here, and he is doing the miraculous right now. And yeah, you can't see it. There is no fire and there are no tongues, and yet he is just as real here today as he was in Acts 2, 2,000 years ago. And he's doing just as big a thing because remember, of the five miracles, the first three are small. They're insignificant compared to the second two and that's what he's doing. He is transforming the hearts of people right here in this room, opening their eyes, helping them to grow as followers and witnesses of Jesus. And I pray he's doing even the greater miracle. I'm praying that someone is here this morning who doesn't yet know Jesus as their savior. And the spirit right now is knocking on their heart opening their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus Christ. The Spirit is here today, just like he was for them in Acts 2. And so that leads us to ask ourselves a couple hard questions. So think about the reality the Spirit is right here today, just as powerful, just as miraculous. That forces us to ask, do, do we believe it? Do I believe that the Spirit can still do Acts 2 right here in our town today? Do I believe that the Spirit can save 3,000 people at a time? 
Do I believe that the Spirit can transform a cowardly sinner into a bold and righteous witness for Jesus Christ? Or have I given up on all that? Does that just all sound too crazy? Praying for 3,000 people to be saved in a day, that's just unrealistic, right? Well, maybe, maybe that feeling of it being unrealistic is saying more about our lack of faith and a lack of power with God. Same God that's here today was there then. He's still at work in the same way today that he was then. He can do everything today that he did in the chapter we just read. And so let's believe it and let's pray for it. Do I pray like I believe that this same spirit is right here with us today? Am I praying expectantly that God will save 3,000 Aggies this semester? Is that really unrealistic? Why couldn't God use us, we, the people in this room, to bring about the salvation of 3,000 of the students and adults in this town this fall? That is not an outrageous prayer. It's the same spirit is in us that was in them. And so let's begin to pray, God, we're going to pray boldly this fall as we go through Acts that you're going to do Acts 2 here in Bryan College Station this fall. We're going to pray that you, Holy Spirit, will open the eyes of 3,000 people this fall who will be added to our community, to our church, to our family. The Spirit can do that. And God, we're going to pray that you're going to use us that you're going to begin to radically transform us into bold witnesses for Jesus, that you're going to take away our fear, that you're going to take away our anxiety, that you're going to lead us into obedience, and you're going to give us boldness and courage to tell people about Jesus. Let's begin to pray that for real. Because the same spirit that was in them is in us. Man, I really want to see 3,000 more people in this town know Jesus by the end of the semester. Spirit can do that. He can do it in and through us. So as a family, as a church, as a community, first and foremost, we're born of the Spirit. It's the Spirit in us who makes us the church. That's first. Second, we are born of the Spirit and we are born of the gospel. Peter is about to get to the meat of his speech, the big news, the big idea of his speech, and and it is what we would call the gospel. Gospel is just a fancy word for good news. That's actually what gospel means in Greek, just good news. And this good news, as we'll see in a moment, is very simple. We, We tend to get it complicated and be intimidated by it, but it's really simple. It reminds me a lot of weddings. I, I've done a lot of weddings because I'm a pastor. It's kind of what, I, what I'm supposed to do. And so I'll go to these weddings. I've done lots of them, and, and they're all different in different ways, but there's always one thing that's the same. Every single wedding I have ever been a part of, something's going to go wrong at some point. On the other way, something's going to go horribly wrong. Uh, the cake's going to fall over, or uh, a groomsman's going to show up and have forgotten his tie, or there's not going to be enough flowers to go around for the arrangements, or somebody's going to forget to put in the right music. Whatever it is, something's going to go wrong, and everybody's going to freak out because that happens. You're already anxious, you're already fearful, and so there's all this tension, and at some point there's probably going to be tears, and that's when I get to do my, the favorite part of my job at a wedding. I pull the bride and groom in, into a room alone, and I remind them, okay, you've got the wedding license and you've got me, so this is going to happen. You're going to get married. No flower fiasco or cake catastrophe is going to stop me from getting this done. You're going home together tonight, and that's all that matters. It's really very simple when you boil it down, just like the gospel. 
We get so intimidated about the gospel. Do I have the right words? Do I know how to say it? Do I know the right verses? And what if the guy asks me about predestination? I am not ready for that. But it's really so simple. You don't have to worry about all of that. The gospel boils down to one thing. Whole gospel, it's all about one thing. A guy named Jesus. It's all that you need to know. If you know who Jesus is and what he did, you're gold. You got it. And so that's what Peter's gonna do. He's gonna share the gospel and it's gonna all be about one person, Jesus. He's gonna tell us four things about Jesus in this speech. The first thing he's gonna tell us is that Jesus lived. Look at me with me at verse 22. Peter says in verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Peter's first point is that Jesus lived. He was a real man, born in a real town, raised in a real town. He's not a myth, not a legend, not a fairy tale. He's a real man who was sent by God. He carries God's authority, and you know that because of all the miracles he did. The miracles are proof that Jesus carried God's authority. Now, someone might say, well, Peter, that's easy for you to say because you saw the miracles. You were there, man, but we're not. So how do we know that those miracles happened? We have no proof that Jesus did any miracles. Actually, we do. We do have proof because what happened to Peter? What happened to Paul? What happened to Matthew? Because of their stories about Jesus living and carrying God's authority, what happened to all of them? Well, they they were all tortured and executed for those stories. So Peter, he was crucified upside down. Paul was whipped, beaten, shipwrecked, stoned, imprisoned, and then beheaded. Matthew, he was run through with a sword. All three of them willingly chose torture and execution rather than recant their stories about Jesus the only reasonable explanation for that is that the stories are true. No one experiences torture and execution for something they knew they made up. No, it really happened. Jesus really lived. He really worked these miracles. He's, he's real. Okay, so Jesus came with God's authority. That's Peter's first point. Second point, he died. Look at verse 23. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now that verse deserves a sermon of its own. I wish I had another hour to just unpack that for you. It's a beautiful mystery. Get God's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side without reconciling them. I don't know how they're both true, they just are. But that's not what I want you to focus on. And that verse, what I want you to focus on is our guilt, Ultimately, why did Jesus go to the cross? Because we are guilty. Because we are sinners just like that crowd was. No, we didn't shout crucify him to Pilate, but that doesn't change the fact that we are just as rebellious as they were. We are just as sinful as they were, and it is because of our sin that God, in eternity past, predetermined to send his son to die for us because God knew that's the only way to take away our guilt. It's what Peter talked about in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Jesus who knew no sin, he never committed a sin, he took all of our sins upon himself and then died in our place so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be healed from sin, so that we could become righteous. That's really the essence of the gospel. With my kids, that's what I try to drive home. Jesus took away your sins. That's why he died. 
That's the essence of it. So Jesus lived and Jesus died and then third, Jesus rose. Look with me in verse 24. It says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And then Peter's gonna go on for a while and he's gonna give you a a complex proof to show that, that God had prophesied, he had promised the resurrection in the Old Testament and it has now come true in Jesus. Jesus the king has been raised by God from the dead because death couldn't hold him down and and by raising Jesus from the dead God has conquered death that's the point of the verse the agony of death is done for us death will not last for us we will live forever with God because Jesus rose okay so Jesus rose from the dead and that leads to the fourth and final point Jesus rules look with me in verse 33 It says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's point is that in the resurrection and in the ascension into heaven, Jesus has been exalted by God. He's now at God's right hand. That's a place of power and honor in an ancient culture. So Jesus is, is in this place of honor and, and in this place of exaltation, he has been crowned king of kings. He is Lord. He rules. He, he reigns over all things. And so Jesus now reigns. That's the fourth and final point that that Peter is making for us. And actually the Spirit is proof of that. A mere human could not command the Holy Spirit. Only the King of Kings could do that. He can send the Spirit because he is Lord. And so the good news about Jesus is very simple. It's just four words, live, died, rose, rules. That's it. You need to know that Jesus lived, died for us, rose from the dead, rules. If you know that, then you know who Jesus is and you can share that with other people. But, but that begs the question, okay, what do we do with that knowledge? What do we do about these four truths? What is our response? Well, we're gonna look at their response next Sunday because it's, it's gonna take some unpacking. We're gonna look at verse 38 in detail and talk about repentance, baptism, belief, all that kind of stuff. Unpack that for you next week. This week, I'm just gonna give you the summary. It comes much later in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Paul is imprisoned in the city of Philippi. But an earthquake happens and all the doors open and you would expect all the prisoners to run away, but Paul doesn't. He stays there and that just blows away the Philippian jailer. He can't believe that Paul stayed. And so he asks Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. If you believe this good news about Jesus, then you are saved. You are forgiven. You have eternal life. That's what it all boils down to. You just got to believe the good news. There's nothing you have to do. No works involved. It's just a free gift. You believe that message and it sets you free from sin and death. That's why we say that the gospel is powerful. Because what other thing on earth could instantaneously free you from shame, guilt, sin, and death? Only this message, only the gospel. Four simple words about Jesus. You believe them and it sets you free and gives you life. The gospel is is our power. It's the secret of what we have to offer to the world. Not our righteousness, not our works, not our nonprofit charity. It's the gospel. 
this incredibly simple good news about Jesus, that there is life through belief in Jesus. That's what we have to offer the world. It's an incredible message. Billy Graham was once in an elevator with a man who suddenly recognized him, and the man said, you're Billy Graham, right? And Billy said, yes. And so the man said, well, wow, you are truly a great man. Um, Billy responded, no, I'm not a great man. I just have a great message. That's what you have. You're as great as Billy Graham. Not that great at all, but you have his same message. You have the good news. I have the good news. That's what makes us great. That's what makes this church great. Not what we bring to the table, but the message that God has given us. This incredible message empowered by God's incredible spirit is what grows and extends the church. And that same spirit and that same message that did amazing things in Acts chapter two is right here for us today. God can do the same stuff through that message in us as he did in them. And so as the men go back to prepare communion, which we're gonna celebrate here in a moment, I want us to ask ourselves a couple questions about this message, the gospel, this good news that Jesus has given us. First, I wanna ask you, do you believe it? What is it that you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that he really lived, that he really died, that he really rose, and that he rules? If not, then I'm gonna ask you, are you willing to come talk to me about it? Will you email me? Or will you talk to someone else here? Will you find somebody else and talk to them about your doubts, about your fears, about whatever's holding you back? I would love to go to coffee with you and just get to know you, hear your story, hear your doubts. I promise you, they won't surprise me. I've had all those same doubts. I've wrestled with all of them. So I'd love to sit down with you and talk to you about Jesus because that's all that really matters at the end of the day. So first question is, what do you believe about Jesus? Second question, if you do believe in Jesus... If you do believe that good news about Jesus, and the second thing I'd ask you is, who are you telling about it? Who are you talking to about Jesus? I'd remind you last week, I told you to be praying for your three. Who are your three? Three people in your life who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior. Three people that I want you praying for every week. As often as I'm up here, I'm gonna remind you to pray for your three I want you to pray that, that first of all, God would open their eyes because it takes a miracle. You can't save people, only the Spirit can. So pray that God would open their eyes, remove their blindness and help them to see the beauty and simplicity of the gospel. So pray that for your three and then pray for yourself that God would open doors for you and give you courage to share the gospel with them this semester. Want to do it this semester while we're going through Acts. Pray for your three to be saved and pray for God to use you to do it. Okay, so we're going to be praying all semester for a chance to share the good news about Jesus with other people. And it's that good news about Jesus that we're going to celebrate this morning in communion. If, if you continued to read in the book of Acts, you would see that right after 3,000 people join the church, what do they do? They get together and break bread. That's communion. They begin to celebrate communion. Why? Because every time they celebrate communion, it reminds them of what Jesus had done. It's what communion is about. We are reminding each other that Jesus really lived, he was real, and he really died for our sins, and he really rose from the dead to set us free. And so we're gonna remind each other of that by taking communion this morning. And as the elements pass, what I'm gonna ask you to do is take these few moments to go to the Lord in prayer and prepare your heart like we talked about earlier. I want you to confess any sin that you know of that God has brought to your mind. Confess it, acknowledge it, God, that was wrong. 
Please forgive me for that. And then I want you to give thanks. I want you to spend some time thanking Jesus for dying for you, for rising from the dead for you. Let's confess and give thanks to prepare our hearts to celebrate Jesus together. So men, if you'll begin to pass the elements. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Spirit and we thank you for the gift of your Son. We praise you and we thank you that Jesus lived and that Jesus died and that Jesus rose and that now he rules. We entrust our lives to him. He is worthy of our faith. He is worthy of our allegiance. Lord, we pray for any person here who is struggling to believe. Maybe they're weighed down by doubts or fears or insecurities or pride or whatever it is, Lord. I pray that you would enable them to see the beauty and the truth of the gospel. Please help it to make sense to them. Please help it to become irresistible to them. And pray, Lord, that you would save anyone who doesn't yet know you. We pray, Lord, for those of us who do know your son, that you would give us courage, that you would work an Acts 2 miracle in us just like you did in Peter. Help us to be bold and faithful and courageous witnesses for Jesus. We pray for our three, that you would open their eyes this semester, that you would give each of us an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them. We pray that you would be pleased in us. In the name of your Son, we pray. Now, if you'll stand, let's respond together in worship.